Previously on No Stone Unturned. I had been talking with Sarah Van Steenbergen about this, and she seemed like maybe she had some leads. And I said, what? And he's, he said, talk to Corey Krieger. There were rumors that one of the boys was from a local farm and that that is where it went. Guessing that is where it sits, wherever that is. I would start by looking at membership of Phi Delta Theta graduating classes 98 to 2000. I'm inclined to believe that after this long, they would want to bury the hatchet and maybe return the rock at some point. I don't know how strong allegiances can remain. I'm John Hanrahan. I'm Sarah Axtell, and this is No, no Stone, Stone Unturned. Unturned. At the very beginning of our hunt for the rock, John and I thought anyone could be a suspect. It could have been Lawrence University administration. They threw it into the Fox River in 1939, so what would stop them from doing it again? We spent a lot of time early on looking through old issues of the Laurentian. I had seen an article from the 1950s about a rock from Lawrence being rescued from Ripon College, at that time our rival school. Did the scuffle over the rock's ownership in the fall of 1998 draw the attention of non-Laurentian rock thieves? On May 15th last year, we met up with Sarah Van Steenbergen, a member of the administration and a Ripon alum. After speaking with her and hearing about all the investigating that she had done, we knew exactly where to look. The fraternity Phi Delta Theta. We had a lead. We were on a roll. Nothing could stop us from finding that rock. We were only a month into our sleuthing and signs of rock mania had begun to appear. Just three days after meeting with Sarah, I messaged John, I have a ton of work to do and I am just looking at Chilton on Google Maps. All because Corey Krieger had told Sarah Van Steenbergen that one of the Fidelts who moved the rock from his yard in October 1998 might have been from a local farm. And John Meyer, head of campus security, had mentioned to Sarah that that local farm might have been in Chilton, Wisconsin. At the suggestion of an email Sarah Van Steenbergen had received from Josh Chudikoff, we contacted two of his fraternity brothers from his graduating class of 1999. One simply echoed Josh's memory of standing vigil with his brothers, a living room's worth of furniture, and a Nintendo 64. The other didn't respond. A week later, we contacted two more alumni from Phi Delta Theta. Nothing. Still. By now, it was June. Within a matter of days, Sarah and I would go our separate ways for the summer. We were convinced that our lead from Sarah had not yet dried up, but we needed to find something new to latch onto before finals wrapped up. So we did something outlandish. In the midst of all the end-of-term academic hubbub, we went back to the imposing, brutalist Sealy G. Mudd Library. We pulled several editions of the Ariel, Lawrence's yearbook, off the shelf. We flipped through the aging pages past the late 90s looks until we found the Greek life sections. Hundreds of names lay before us. Names from each of the fraternities. Phi Delta Theta, Delta Tau Delta, Beta Theta Pi, Phi Kappa Tau, and Sigma Phi Epsilon. We did the obvious thing, of course, and typed out all 268 names. As far as suspects, we decided to rule out Colin Belisle, a beta from the class of 2002. As a violist in the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, we figured it was safe to assume he wouldn't steal a 4,700-pound boulder. So we had 267 potential suspects to work our way through, and only about a week to do it while also finishing a piano lit final and a term paper in the form of a short crime story in German. Using Lawrence's alumni database, we began to look up emails. Thinking we might be able to schedule at least one more in-person interview before we left campus, we took note of the local alumni. We found seven local boys from Phi Delta Theta and Delta Tau Delta. We emailed them. 
they didn't respond. It was time for me to head back down to Johnsburg, my small hometown in northern Illinois. And I was preparing for my fall semester in Germany while packing up for a summer theater internship at the 3rd Avenue Playhouse in Sturgeon Bay, Door County. At this point, the project could have stagnated. We could have given up. We could have looked at the non-responsiveness on the one hand and our daunting list of suspects on the other and said, forget it. Finding this mysterious two-ton piece of granite while working 200 miles apart? Not worth it. We were actually talking about this part of the investigation a few weeks ago. We both agreed that we are so glad we didn't stop there. You have no idea how glad we are. It didn't take much reporting for us to notice something about The Rock's social history. Well, The Rock was because of my grandfather, Dexter Putnam Nicholson. There were rumors that one of the boys was from a local farm and that that is where it went. Certainly, Greek allegiance and and fraternal bond doesn't go away even if your organization does. You can imagine it takes a lot of manpower to move that thing. So it was very much a dude thing to do. It was a very dude thing to do. Images of boys, machinery, weapons, frat houses, etc. really seem to make up most of The Rock's past. Or, at least, that's what has been most reported and documented. Take, for example, the story told by Robert Swain, class of 1959, to former Lawrence archivist Julius Stringfellow in 2009. The event that occurred involving The Rock, Mm -hmm. which I remember more than almost anything else, was Mm -hmm. one year, and I think I was a freshman, I'm pretty sure I was a freshman, And Monday night was when the fraternities all had their fraternity meetings. So all the pledges and all the fraternity members were all in the quad at the same time on Monday evening. And word went out that there was going to be a bunch of town kids coming to the campus, and they were going to paint the rock. Oh. (laughs) And so everybody was waiting for this Mm -hmm. to happen and we're down in the meeting and the word went out they're coming they're coming and i mean the quad just emptied en masse and i think at the time the rock was over near what was north house do you know where north house was no i don't It, it was well the chapel is here right and north house was right behind the chapel oh okay uh in what's now part of the conservatory arcade that goes across from the chapel to the original thing. And, okay. and I'm pretty sure that the rock was over at North House. Somebody had stolen it and put it there. Okay. So en masse, the mm-hmm. fraternity go swarming across the campus yeah. to protect the rock from the town kids. <laughs> and there was a fairly serious fight went on. Oh, wow. Two guys, I remember, the word was they were from the south side of Chicago, and they literally took socks, put bars of soap in them, and that's like a blackjack, and it yeah. it's, can be very yeah. deadly, yeah. and we're whacking the town kids who were trying to, trying oh to get at the rock, and everybody went scattering, mm-hmm. and... I later found out that one of the Appleton PD was on motorcycles at that time. They had a lot of motorcycles mm-hmm. with sidecars. Mm-hmm. And I later found out one of the cops, they came, the cops let this go on, this fighting go on mm-hmm. for a little while. And then all of a sudden they came swarming in. And the word was the cops had said, You guys scatter, we'll get the townies. <laughs> <laughs> that was. Yeah, that, 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 that was all involved, The Rock. Mm-hmm. And 
-hmm. going after the rock. Yeah. <laughs> that was my involvement in the rock. Okay. I didn't hit anybody. <laughs> Good. Glad to hear it. Like, this is the part of rock lore that gets to me. I get that you can paint it and steal it and everything feels fun and crazy and rule-breaky, but I don't think this is fun. I think this is just scary and violent. Now, I like mischief and mayhem as much as the next guy, but I'm a pacifist. I don't want my college traditions to involve the police, much less the Appleton Police Department, condoning and maybe even partaking in violence. I mean, Roberts is an old story. I'd be willing to wonder if any of it's exaggerated. But there are more than just this one account of rock-related injuries. I don't mean to be a stick in the mud, but... Boys being boys and fighting and hurting each other over a two-ton chunk of granite is dumb. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And as much as I don't want to say it, the boys' game element is essential to the rock's origins. Just check out this bit from Effie Bochip's dedicatory ode. There is that in the nature of man which causes him to desire to be remembered which makes him strive constantly to write his name high on the pillars of fame, even though he knows the glory be but of short duration. The class of 95 is no exception. Later, he invokes Caesar and Napoleon as examples of men who strove to be remembered. Two power-hungry patriarchs. It's great that the class of 95 has this rock to be remembered by. Obviously, I'm glad they brought it to campus. But we're hoping to reroute history and tradition away from the boys' games towards a more inclusive path. It is important to remember the women at our historically co-ed college, too. Though Sarah and I are fully engrossed in The Rock's wonderful history, we also want to question and challenge the control men, and specifically fraternities, have had over it for decade after decade. And let it not be forgotten that groups of women did contribute to the mythos of The Rock. As a great example, the saga of the Sage Girls— as told by Judy Larson in the November 9th, 1957 issue of The Laurentian. Triumphant cries of, We did it all by ourselves, shattered last Saturday's lethargic afternoon peace for the residents of Sage Hall. They rushed to their windows to find the old, time-worn, and paint-laden rock being towed into place by peoters and five disheveled co-eds. These five ambitious girls, now minus fingernails, are Jan Lindgren, Sandy Olson, Joan Jackson, Judy Ash, and Peggy Quinn. Apparently, the idea for hoisting the rock came to them over their lunch at Sage. Whether the lunch had any bearings on the rock and cement is left to the imagination. Finding that fingernails and various feminine instruments were not enough to move the stubborn rock, they managed to charm nearby construction workers to aiding the cause via pickaxes. The amused residents of North House, in the meantime, refused to admit to themselves that these five trespassers could get anywhere and lost the rock before they had a chance to retaliate. One of the triumphant girls expressed her amazement when the rock finally moved by shouting, What the freshman boys won't do, the sophomore women will. However, bringing the rock to Sage was only half the problem. By far the bigger half was keeping it there long enough to gloat. We are going to take it into Sage tonight and put it to bed with us. This solution, expressed by Mary Kett, seemed the safest but not the most practical or comfortable. Throughout the day, the more hefty and light-fingered members of the Quad and Brokaw were kept at bay by a barrage of apples and water bombs thrown by quite accurate marksmen from the embattled fortress. That night, provisions were made for a bucket brigade from the third floor balcony to dampen the spirits of any felonious night raiding freshman, and a bugle call was to summon every available sagewoman to defend their new possession, even at four in the morning. However, 
Much to the amazement of the quad and Sage, the rock still stood firm on Sunday morning and without the help of the bugle. Three days later, a group of Lawrence men took the rock once more. It's worth mentioning that that article was titled, I kid you not, Rape of the Rock. Yes, the women's dorm for once snatched the rock from those smug North House boys, and in response, some individual, most likely a member of the paper's editorial staff, chose to associate the incident with sexual assault. No wonder women didn't want much to do with the rock if they couldn't lay a finger on it without the thoughtless invocation of sexual violence. It doesn't stop there. Keep in mind that this is a front-page, above-the-fold article on November 9th, 1957. So, just below the headline, you see a photo, taken by Sean Tabin. John and I identified three focal points in Sean's photo. We'll work through them backwards. The third focal point, in the background, is a line of young men facing the camera. One is wearing a letterman jacket. Two of the others are in what appear to be white jumpsuits. Focal point number two, of course, is the rock itself. It is hulking. It comes up past the men's waists. It is in the midst of being painted white by focal point number 2.5, a couple of the sage girls, hunched away from the camera to face the rock. And then, focal point number one. You pick up your copy of the Laurentian on some chilly November afternoon, and the first thing you see? One of those sage girls' butts. She's bending over to paint the underside of the rock, and as a result, her behind is pointed almost directly at Sean's camera. Sean's camera went snap. And that's the photo he submitted to the paper. Even with the article reporting on the wit of those young sage women, they are depicted less as people with personalities and more as bodies to be ogled. It's a new century, millennium even. Though we're stuck reporting on the antics of campus men, we're hoping to lay out a social history of the rock that isn't a complete boys game. And it's great to imagine a future that doesn't involve men completely hogging the campus's dang boulder. By mid-June, Lawrence University's academic year was over. Sarah was taking line notes and dressing actors at her Sturgeon Bay Theater. And John was practicing Mendelssohn and Poulenc at home in Johnsburg. We had very different things to do in moderately different parts of the Midwest. And somehow we needed to keep at an investigation that seemed to be very close to a dead end. But summer was here. The sun was actually shining, consistently. It was a time for dreaming and scheming, especially where the rock was concerned. Were we in any way close to finding the rock? Nope. And that did not stop us from counting our unhatched chickens. I think my my little sister asked me, she said, so what do you do with it? (laughs) That classic, like, what's the point? (laughs) And I honestly said, I have no idea. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. Like, if we find it, I imagine we'd want to, like, reveal that we have it until after our... like the radio show is done yeah we don't want to spoil the ending by having this big rock like lying around yeah nor that and no matter what we move this thing in the dead of night absolutely i feel like it's only fitting yeah when's the last time anyone moved a boulder in the middle of the day i mean i want to hire a team of people in the middle of the night with ropes probably what we do is we dump it in the fox oh but that's like so icky and gross Yeah, dredge it up, covered in barnacles. Talk to Burstein, have it in his backyard. There's also the question of, what are we going to paint on it when we find it? But 
I mean, there's also the fact that painting the rock has become effeminate, so... Should we? Oh, we should consult Helen Boyd Kramer. Helen Boyd Kramer being a lecturer in the Gender Studies Department. Gender Theory and oh, the Rock. Oh, my God. Gender Politics and the Four-Ton Granite Pebble. Third Wave Feminism and the Rock. Not a <laughs> voice game anymore. Can you imagine a yik-yak dedicated only to rock facts? We'll be the first to ever take a selfie with the rock. <gasps> <laughs> It was mid-June. We had sent out three waves of emails to ten different people and had only received one response. That response being a curt request not to mention the responder on the radio. We tried for one last email push. We sent emails to 16 new people, eight Delta alumni and eight Fidelts. Miraculously, the next day, we got our first real response from Brad Manning, a Delta alum from the class of 2000. Phi Delta Theta, my young friend, that is where your answers lie. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either misinformed or intentionally misleading you. Veritas es looks. Good luck. Straightforward in terms of confirming Fidelt's suspicions, but utterly cryptic in every other regard. What were we stumbling into, and why did it merit invoking Lawrence's Latin motto? Our thirst for answers renewed. We were elated to receive eight responses total from our fourth wave of emails, each email adding a curious new piece to the puzzle. Another class of 2000 Delt alum, Justin Mills, gave us a detailed account of Delt's role in escalating rock-related tensions. So, for a very, very long time, the rock resided in front of the old Phi Delt house, where it was anchored to the ground with a strange mixture of cement and bed springs. The Phi Delts had painted it blue and white for obvious reasons. Those obvious reasons were that blue and white were the official colors of Phi Delta Theta. In the summer of 1998, a bunch of Delts, including myself, spent the summer living in plants. Sometime before preseason began for the fall sports, Ben Cesar, perhaps drunk or hungover at the time, decided to rent a Caterpillar backhoe. He proceeded to park it in front of the Phi Delt house, which was empty because preseason had not yet started and because everyone was living in plants. Knowing Ben, he probably just played around on it for a bit to figure out how it worked. Anyway, he managed to dislodge the rock and transport it to the interior, quad-side area between the Delt house and the Beta house. I seem to remember him digging a small hole while physical plants supervised and dropping it in. Immediately thereafter, we painted it purple and gold, for obvious reasons. Those obvious reasons were that purple and gold were the official colors of Delta Tau Delta. This enraged the Phi Delts because they had always represented that the rock was immovable. They didn't expect a short physics major from North Jersey with no prior construction experience to move it in less than an hour. Ultimately, the responses included two alumni willing to do interviews. The first was Jeff Ramsey, a Phi Delta alum of the class of 2000. On June 25th, I sat in my cramped Sturgeon Bay kitchen, John sat on his screen porch in Johnsburg, and we Skyped Jeff from his living room in Cudahy. Yeah, well, which I was sort of excited um, to, to get your email to kind of um, have a conversation, sort of tell you a little bit more about the history of it and my what I know about it. When I started at Lawrence, I started in 96, and at that point in time, The Rock was 
permanently, and obviously not anymore, but in my mind, permanently in front of the Fidel House. So when I first started, I just thought it was ours. I didn't know that there was a tradition around moving it around because I didn't know any different. You know, whenever we would have an event, we would paint it or we'd do it for Horror Homecoming and it had our fraternity letters on it, so. Interesting. Were the letters painted on it or carved into it? Painted on it. If I remember correctly, I think there was maybe a date carved in it from when it first came to campus. Uh, It was just painted over. When did you find out that it was something more than just a Fidel tradition? Um, well, this, this gets into sort of the heart of the matter. My junior year, so that would have been the fall of 98, uh, it, was, it was a while before homecoming, because it wasn't right before, the Delta Tau Delta fraternity, um, who was kind of our rival at the time, picked it up and moved it. Like, they ripped it out of the ground, whatever had kind of anchored into the ground, they ripped it up and they brought it in front of their house. Um, and at the time, in my mind, I was like, this is ours. I was a history major and I'm a historian. And so I get into that stuff and started reading a little bit more and realized, oh, well, this was sort of a, tr- a longstanding tradition of the different organizations, whether it be fraternities or whatever, uh, moving it back and forth. And uh, as I recall, that was what the tradition was. If you had it at homecoming, then you, your group had it for the year. So that's when I first became aware of that particular side of the tradition. So the Delts took it. Well, we took it back, and we actually had it the week of homecoming. And because we didn't want to lose it again, we actually camped out. We had members outside by the rock 24-7. Well, not 7, but I think we got it back the Wednesday of homecoming week. And we set up, like, a tent around it. We brought out, like, chairs and couches, and there was a Packer game that Thursday night, so we ran some extension cords out of the house. We had all the guys watching the Packer game, and then people had their video game systems out there and just kind of camped out around it, trying to keep it uh, up until homecoming. It, it was a weird thing the nights we were guarding it. Uh, like I said, there was a, there were some security guards, and there was a security guard there at the time um, I don't know his last name, but we all called him Big John because he was, uh, gosh, had to be six six, probably 300 pounds. I mean, just this kind of mountain of a man. We later realized that the Big John referenced here is actually John Meyer, the now head of campus safety who gave Sarah Van Steenbergen her first major lead regarding The Rock. And we were kind of friends with him. He actually played uh, IM basketball with us once and... You know, just kind of a, a fun guy to have around. And he came into the tent with us and watched the Packer game. And um, I remember that Thursday night when the Packer game got over, he was the one that stood up and said, OK, all you football players, you go to bed now because you got a game in two days. And then he kind of made sure that the other guys were safe overnight and all that kind of stuff. So. so homecoming is a Saturday, I think Friday afternoon. Um, the fightouts were a lot of football players at that time. So we had practice that Friday. And so a lot of our guys were gone, and we had a few members that stayed back that weren't football players. And when we came back from practice that afternoon, uh, we came back to see the Delts again. Sounds silly now as a 37-year-old, but at the time it was very serious that um, sort of a standoff where the Delts were there with the front end loader, and we had our guys that were kind of standing in front of the rock and wouldn't let them get to it. Uh, Dean Truesdale, I think she might still be there, um, were around at that time as well. And she came out and then a couple other folks and kind of became, at that point, became concerned about safety because you had guys with a big truck and that other guy standing in front of it. So that doesn't make for a very safe situation. Um, And so they, sorry, our baby is 
not feeling great, and he chose this time to wake up. So that was nice of him. So anyway, so they kind of became concerned about safety, and so they brought some leaders of each of the fraternities in. Uh, at that time, I wasn't the president. I eventually was elected president of Phi Delta, but I went with the president at that time. And then there was a couple of members of the Delts, and we kind of met with Dean Truesdale, and it ended up coming to a compromise that we would place the rock in front of the president's house, and that would be where it would stay. We said, okay, you know, neither one of us will get it this year. And I don't remember for sure, but part of me says that we agreed on that compromise, but then that night or maybe Saturday night of homecoming, the Delts ended up taking it from the president's house and putting it in front of their house anyway. And I have to say it was as much as we were sort of disappointed that, that we had lost it, you know, it, it wasn't in front of our house anymore. In, in my mind, and I don't know that I probably said this to anybody at the time, uh, but certainly in retrospect, I was sort of glad that, that it happened because I thought it was kind of a neat tradition that had gotten revived and it kind of went back and forth between the two the two fraternities and with some administration planning and whatnot to broker a deal and a compromise. So, Jeff, while you were there, how did people move the thing? <laughs> you know, I was not personally involved with any of the movement. I truthfully never actually physically saw it being moved. I was never kind of one of the people that was there when it got moved. So I'm having trouble picturing my head that process. But, you know, even if you've got 10 guys around it and all said one, two, three lift that you could do anything with it. Um, so you definitely had to rent some equipment. And that's kind of what what everybody had done. With all these Greek relationships and rivalries, at this point, what was Fidel's thing? Like, what was their personality as a fraternity? I'm glad you asked that question. There's a couple of different ways that I would answer that. Number one, I think the thing we were most known for is we were we were very an athletic house. We had uh, quite a few football players, a good chunk of the wrestling team. There was a wrestling program at Lawrence at that time, um, and those were kind of the two groups that really sort of defined who we were. We were uh, pretty heavily involved on campus. We had guys that were in theater and other clubs and other kinds of things like that, and we had um, pretty active in community service and. Uh, I think we were pretty well-known and pretty well-respected on campus overall. If you were there in 1998 and asked some random Lawrence student what they knew about the Fidelts, they would say that they were athletes, because um, that was pretty much the bulk of our chapter at that time. And following that, how would you characterize the Delts of your day? If we're dealing in stereotypes, and so I said Fidelts were the jocks, Delts probably would be characterized as the preppy. You know, they were kind of the, always wearing the polo shirts and that's the way they came off, I think. But again, like the Fidels, they kind of had a lot of different things going on as well. They had a few football players, they had some athletes, they had some other people in, in terms of organizations and whatnot. What did outside organizations other than Delt and Fidelt think of what was going on with The Rock? My, my recollection is that whenever there was sort of this kind of thing, a rivalry between the two fraternities, that the rest of the kind of Greek system, take sides is the wrong way to put it, but it was sort of, you know, certain groups would say, oh, you know, the Fidel should have it, other groups would say, no, the Delt should, and, but nobody else really got, like, heavily involved in it, and, and truthfully, I think part of that came from the fact that it had been in front of our house for so long that, you know, my guess is that there weren't many people on campus that knew much about the tradition, knew much about the history of it. Um, I don't recall any other student organizations kind of jumping in and saying, oh, maybe we'd like to steal it next year or anything like that. I think it, my recollection is it was sort of a, uh, a Greek thing. I don't recall other student organizations getting kind of into the spirit of it. I, I will be up front. Um, I kind of asked around and I don't, and I truthfully don't know where it is. And the people that I know don't know where it is either, so we might be at a dead end from my perspective 
of finding it. We have high hopes of possibly finding it and returning it to campus. Sure. After I got your email, um, and again, some of the other people you sent it to had contacted me and I had talked to them. We sort of talked through it. You know, we, we know that it was moved somewhere off campus during our era. Um, I mean, obviously, the people that moved it um, were uh, contemporaries of mine, people I knew, but none of the people that I still maintain contact with have any idea where it is. There's kind of suppositions and my, my guess is I'm sure it hasn't moved too far. It probably didn't go states away. It's probably still somewhere in the Fox Valley in general, but where exactly I, I couldn't direct you. Would you have any predictions or wants for if the rock were to return to campus in the 21st century? To be honest, I think one of the things that if, if it did come back, I certainly like the tradition. I would love to see more students and more student groups getting involved in it. Like I said, at the time that I was there, it was kind of a Greek thing. Um, and as much as I love the Greek system and I think there's a lot of value to it, to have this sort of tradition, having a lot of different organizations involved in it, I think would be kind of a neat, uh, a neat thing to kind of revive that if it came back. Part of me also would like to see, you know, we've, we've, I've talked to a bunch of alumni when this, you had sent out emails to a bunch of different people and um, some of the people that you sent them to I know and I had uh, kind of asked around what they had thought and uh, a lot of them expressed the interest that, hey, it'd be great to try to see if we can bring it back when the finals come back. We were the ninth chapter of Fight Out the Theta nationally to receive a charter at Lawrence. So the Fight Outs have been at Lawrence uh, in one shape or another uh, since 1859 until they were closed in 2010. So I certainly have a kind of a personal interest in seeing the Fight Outs come back. Uh, and I think it would be neat to have the Fight Outs come back and the Rock come back with them. And then from that point, kind of revive that tradition. There's definitely a generation of alumni in my era and, and probably a little bit before um, who kind of see The Rock as ours. So I think there's a lot of sentiment like, you know, let's bring it back but have the fight else come back with it kind of thing. But I think once it comes back, whenever it comes back, and whether that's when the fight else come back or if it comes back at another time, and I personally would like to see that tradition continue where it goes back and forth and you have more of these sort of moments of, we want to keep it, so we're going to guard it, or you know, we're going to go in the middle of the night and bring a front end loader and move it someplace else. And you know, I don't know, I don't know how your careers with Lawrence have gone, but those are the things that I remember. I mean, I had great professors and great classes, and had good friends and had good times. But you know, some of those things are the things that kind of stand out in my mind as pretty defining moments of my college career, I guess. Which sounds strange to say I got this wonderful, high-priced education and. What I remember is moving a big two-ton rock, but that's how it goes. Jeff's interview, while not providing any concrete details about the whereabouts of the rock, still left us feeling good about our search. It was nice to be able to connect with someone who was really there, to prove that the whole thing wasn't just a shared fever dream. A few days later, we talked to Rahul Kalsi, a Delta alum also from the class of 2000. We had a great conversation with him, and he gave us lots of detailed first-hand information from the other side's point of view. Unfortunately, we were still getting the hang of our recording software and realized too late that the interview hadn't been recorded. Fortunately, I took notes. Rahul's story matched up with the others. He did mention the fact that Ben Atkinson, a SIGEP, may have been the one who helped the Fidelts move the rock off campus. We've been unable to get in contact with Ben to confirm this, though. Rahul also talked about how the general character of the Lawrence student body was different then, as compared to now. John quoted him describing the campus as engrossed in tradition with campus spirit at an all-time high. The parties were bigger, and so were the frat rivalries. Rahul clearly enjoyed his time at Lawrence. 
But he was also willing to say that in perspective, the interfraternal conflicts were not nearly as important as they seemed at the time. He told us that he thought The Rock returning to campus could be a good thing. He said he'd like to see the tradition rekindled in a healthier way than what went down in the 90s. Following these interviews, it was clear that the Fidelts were ultimately the ones directly responsible for orchestrating The Rock's disappearance. The suggestion that members of SIGAP or Beta may have been involved complicated things further. And then there's the added twist. If Jeff, a Fidelt who was actually on campus when The Rock was taken, didn't know where it was, did anyone? Is it possible to just lose track of a two-ton hunk of granite? John and I were stumped. For the next few days, we cycled back to the journalist waiting game. Over a Facebook chat, I remarked, I will be part disappointed and part relieved if this doesn't lead to us wandering around some odd corner of the Fox Valley looking for the thing. But mostly relieved, I guess, because we have very limited time to do any searching of the physical realm. To which I replied, I mean, for some reason, the idea of it just sitting innocently in the middle of the field makes aesthetic sense. But it would be exceptionally difficult, I think, to say, oh, it's at this exact field. I never forgot the geographic coordinates. My brain just works like that. LOL, I'm a Fidel, I guess. So, yeah, we were reduced to mindless speculation. If the Fidelts didn't know where it was, who did? We had hit a dead end. Until we got a call from an anonymous source. Next time on No Stone Unturned. No Stone Unturned is produced by John Hanrahan and me, Sarah Axtell. Ridley Tankersley wrote and performed the original score for this episode. Willa Johnson designed our logo. We received production assistance from Nathan Lawrence. Kip Hathaway performed the 1895 class oration by F.E. Bochip. Jill Etherington performed Judy Larson's article about the Sage Girls. Michaela Hutton performed the emails from Brad Manning and Justin Mills. The Robert Swain interview was used with the permission of the Lawrence University Archives. Special thanks to Layla Horesh. For more information about No Stone Unturned and past episodes, visit our website at nsupodcast.rocks. That domain extension is .rocks. Rocks. If you like this podcast, visit our page on iTunes and throw us a nice rating or review. Thanks. Much to the amazement of the quad. Are your quads burning? <laughs> Are your quads burning? Are your quads burning? Are your quads burning? Are your quads burning? <laughs> Are your quads burning? It really gets my mouth going. <laughs>